We sure appreciate all the interns that we have here at BlackRock. And as you can tell from Jillian, she lacks enthusiasm. Uh, she is wearing me out already, and she's only been here for four weeks. But I think I'll survive until she goes back to school. But she's been great. And we've been talking about our stamp program. And I want to encourage you to, to stop by the stamp booth and to... Uh, Look into the possibilities. See what God would have you do as far as your involvement in one of these trips. As I look back at my own life, one of the things that formed me as a Christian was my time overseas. In 1995, Susan and I uh, took our family to Quito, Ecuador. And there we were involved with HCJB, one of our partner ministries. Susan was doing medical work with them. And I was at English Fellowship Church as the interim pastor. While we were there, one of the things we decided to do was go to the Galapagos. And so um, I was tasked with the responsibility of buying uh, sandals for my daughter, Kimia. And uh, I knew that the people in Ecuador, uh, at least at, up in the mountains in Quito, really didn't wear beach sandals. So I knew I had to go to a store. I couldn't buy them along the street where you can buy all kind, find all kinds of bargains. So I went to the store and I told the missionary that I was fluent in Spanish and that was a joke in itself. But I, I said, you don't need to go with me. I, I can handle this. So I went to the store and I found the uh, sandals and uh, talked to the lady and I said, how much are they? And she said, 70 mil sucres. So I gave her that amount, that's 70,000 sucre. And as I'm walking away, very proud of myself, I start to think, 70,000 sucre. Wow, that sounds like that's a lot. And uh, especially when a dollar was 2,200 sucres. So I did some quick math and realized I had just paid $31 for these sandals. And you know, I could have bought them at Kmart or Target for about $2.99. So I went back. And often what happens when you're an Anglo-American and you speak only English and you know just a little bit of Spanish, in the, in the throes of our conversation, I reverted to just adding O's to all my questions. And so I said to her, uh, Senorita, el mistaco. And uh, she said, no, 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 senor. Uh, I only charged you 7,000 sucres. And I said, no, 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 I gave you 70,000 sucres. No, no, she said. I said, look at your jippo me. And, and these are cheapo sandals. The end result is that I walked out wearing, oh, not wearing, but having sandals that cost $31 that my daughter wore in the Galapagos Islands. There's a Latin phrase you may be familiar with, caveat emptor. That's translated buyer beware. Examine what you are about to buy before you complete your transaction. But once money is exchanged, once a deal is signed, it's too late to go back. So as a buyer, you need to be very aware of what you're doing. There's a Latin phrase that, uh, that's translated for us from um, Plato's Apology. It's a remark made evidently by Socrates at his defense. It goes like this. The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. St. Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, gives them an example of what they should be doing when they come to the communion table. And he says, in effect, buyer beware. 
Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, or on your device, and you'll see the situation. This is the, the, the chapter that's probably the most often repeated chapter in the entire Bible. You can make an argument that it's the Lord's Prayer, but you can make, I think, even a stronger argument that actually it is this section in 1 Corinthians 11. For in this chapter, we find encapsulated the whole ceremony, the whole event that takes place when we come to the communion table. And so it's very familiar to us. And Paul says an interesting thing. Chapter 17, verse 34. The ordinance of Christ, if it does not make us better, will make us worse. Now, that's not the quote. We're going to pick that up a little bit later, but that's the essence of what he is saying. The ordinance of Christ, the communion table, set before us, if it does not make us better, is apt to make us worse. Well, what's going on here? What's going on in the church at Corinth? What's the problem here? Paul paints us a kind of a threefold situation here. First of all, there's problems in the church. Secondly, there's the perils in the church. And thirdly, what's the prescription for the church? What's the remedy for the problem? First, what are the problems in the church? Verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Do you hear what Paul says there? He says to them, as they come to the communion table, that your meetings are causing more harm than good. When I was a brand new second lieutenant in the Air Force, I remember my commander, a colonel, who was a rough and tumble guy, kind of had the Attila the Hun School of Management. And I remember him standing about two inches away from my face with my unit behind me, 120 men at work for me. And he said to me, Lieutenant Fullerton, are you part of the solution or part of the problem? I knew he wasn't looking for an answer at that point, but I did get the point. Paul says to the church, I have no praise for you, for your meetings are doing more harm than good. And then he gives three reasons why these meetings, as they come together as a church, is harmful to them. First, he says in verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, Paul has addressed the issues going on in the church as far as divisions in the church in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. You know the situation. There's been kind of a cult following where individuals have said, well, I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollo, and others would say, no, I follow Paul, and somebody would say, well, I follow Christ. And so these divisions have caused discourse in the church, and even as they come to the table, they have not been resolved. The second problem is defined in verse 20 and 21. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, but when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Paul is referring to is what, uh, what Paul is referring to is what we call the love uh, feast. It was a, a time, the agape meal. It's a time when the, the church came together almost like a black rock potluck and, and everyone brought food, but evidently the rich people, as they came to the table and the, 
there was a supper before the communion, similar to what had taken place as Jesus had instituted this at the Passover meal. There was a supper before they partook of the elements. And so evidently, people in the church, if they brought a lot, were the first to eat. And other people were just kind of caught up in the leftovers. And that's a problem in the church. But there's a third problem, verse 21, and another gets drunk. Evidently, there were even people in the church who had a drinking problem. And therefore, Paul says in verse 17, your meetings are causing more harm than good. Can you imagine that if Paul stood before the church here at the end of one of our worship services and said, what you're doing, what you have just done, the singing, the preaching, it's doing more harm than good. And especially in reference to the table set before us. Well, what's the perils for the church? Verses 23 to 26 are going to be the, what we call the, the words of institution. As we come to the table, we're going to be talking about what, what Paul says that Jesus passed on to us. But Paul picks up that thought in verse 27. So, so men, whoever eats the Lord's bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. John Calvin commenting on this verse said this, it is to ruin the pure and proper use by our own abuse. It's to do something that's detrimental to our soul, to our very being. To partake of the elements in an unworthy manner. Paul has our attention now. And he says to us, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Now, there are some consequences to this. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick. John Calvin, commenting on the verse again, said that there may have been a plague in Corinth, and people were sick. But worse than that, he says, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Acts the, eighth, uh, the seventh chapter has a story of Stephen. And Stephen is going to be the first martyr of the church. You remember, they're about to stone him. He's given a great sermon, and then the people, the Jewish people, the establishment, are so riled up, they're going to kill him. And so his final words are these, Lord, do not hold this against them. And then the commentator adds this phrase. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Falling asleep in this passage is a euphemistic figure of speech to mean people have died as a result of not partaking of the elements in a worthy manner. Back to our text. Paul says to us, really a heavy thing here. He says there's even the possibility that bad things can come out of a communion service. I don't think I've ever heard a worship song or a hymn that talks about this a great deal, talks about our need to examine ourselves. But Paul says that your meetings do more harm than good. 
Maybe a good way to put it again is back to that phrase, that which does not do us good is apt to do us bad. The problem, divisions, bitterness, selfishness, drunkenness in the church. The peril, treating the Lord's meal as just another meal, another ritual, another thing we do at Black Rock once a month. Yeah, we're going to do communion again. Well, what's the prescription for the church? Verse 28, everyone ought to examine himself before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For verse 31, if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. The communion table is a marvelous opportunity given to us by God that allows us to take inventory of our lives. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've gone in, into the mall and there's a, there's a store there with a sign and, and it says closed for inventory. But what is the owner doing at that point? The owner is looking at what she has on the shelf and she's assessing what do I need to buy in order to fill up the store and make it better? And that's what we have at communion. It's our opportunity to take inventory of our lives, to realize that it is not a ritual. It is not just another occasion to do something in the church. Well, what do we examine? What should we examine? Paul says of the church, the words of Jesus as we come to the communion elements, we are to do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. One of the things about memory is that you cannot remember that which you never knew. You cannot remember that which you never knew. And so if you've never come to the point of knowing that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he paid the penalty for your sins, for my sins, and that's the only way we can come and partake of the elements in a worthy manner, with the understanding that Christ's death was for me, that it cost God his son, and it cost Christ his life. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And if you've never made that profession of faith, a public profession of faith, where you've come forward and said and prayed with someone saying, I accept that Christ's death on the cross was for me. You can do it this day. We'll have people in the front here that would love to pray with you in that regard. But secondly, for those of us who are Christ followers, what should we examine? Some people will say, well, you shouldn't examine anything because everyone's an individual. And so the individual makes up the rules, what's right, what's wrong. Or some would say society makes up the rules of what's right and what's wrong. Or democracy makes up the rule of what's right and what's wrong. But if you are a Christ follower, you have to understand, as I need to understand, that Christ sets the scale of what's right and what's wrong. Galatians, the fifth chapter, he gives what we call the fruit of the Spirit. You may be familiar with this. These are, some, these, these are the nine fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, or 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As you look at those nine things displayed behind me, if you're married, would your spouse say you exhibit any of those characteristics? Would your children ever say to you, hey, Dad, you really are gentle. You really are kind. You really are faithful. You really are self-controlled. Would your colleagues at work ever say that to you, to me? Are you exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Because Paul gives a counterbalance to the fruit of the Spirit. He calls it the acts of the sinful nature, verses 19 through 21. The list is even longer. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, a discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And he concludes in verse 21, I warn you, as I did before, that they who live like this will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The elements set before us, if they do not make us better, are apt to make us worse. I've been reading a book by Dr. Eric Metaxas. It's a book about, it's a biography of Martin Luther, the reformer. And I was struck by something he said in his research he found concerning Luther. Prior to the Reformation, when he was still a monk in Erfurt, Germany, that sometimes he would spend six hours in confession before he would take the communion elements. He wore out the confessional priests. Now, I'm not, he kind of went to the extreme, and later in the Reformation, he really backed away from this. But there is something to be said for us having a time of reflection when we just kind of stop and we examine our lives, we examine our commitments and our obedience. So we're going to do something we hardly ever do here at Black Rock. We're going to have three minutes of absolute silence. I don't know about you, but I don't like silence. I often, if it's silent, I'll find a, a radio or I'll sing a worship song or I'll take out that little, little demon called my cell phone. And I'll look for emails that are superfluous or Facebook that has useless junk in it because I don't like silence. But the communion service allows us to have a time of silence, a time of reflection, a time of introspection. But we ask God, are there things that I need to work on in regard to the fruit of the Spirit? Are there things I need to stay away from in that second list? Are there people I need to go to and ask for forgiveness? Three minutes of silence. No music, no PowerPoint, no speaker. 
as we prepare to come to the communion table this morning. Let's pray. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online. And we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.